It's very fun to put those songs together. Um, obviously, the content is the same of both, but uh, know that the word hallelujah means praise to Yahweh. The Yah of hallelujah is the abbreviated name of the Lord. So we sang praise the name of the Lord our God and praise the name of the Lord is what we sang. Amen. Have you heard this statement before? Anybody say this to you lately? My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. Anybody land to you with that one lately? <laughs> Let me tell you where it comes from, okay? After Solomon's death, after Solomon's death, the people of Israel wanted a breather. If you remember, they accomplished a lot during Solomon's reign. And so his son, Rehoboam, is the new king, and, and they ask him to give them some break, give him a break. Uh, and so Rehoboam, the new king, sought counsel. He sought, sought counsel from the older men who had given counsel to his father, and he sought counsel from younger men, men that were his buddies, that he knew that he'd grown up with, that looked like him and talked like him and laughed at what he laughed at, uh, people he, that he was comfortable with. Does that make sense? So all these people gave their counsel to Rehoboam, and the older counselors encouraged him to cut the people some slack. And that if he did, if he gave them a little breather, they would serve him happily for the rest of his life. The younger counselors told Rehoboam to assert his authority. Now's your chance. Assert your authority, Rehoboam. Increase the load. Make it harder. Get more done. Guess who he listened to? In response to these counselors and to the people, he, he said to them, My little finger will be thicker than my father's thigh. He let them know, if you thought that was hard, get ready for, for my reign. And in response, the people of Israel said, okay, well then you are no longer our king. And the uh, ten tribes that were the northern tribes uh, seceded, broke off of the nation, and the northern ten tribes kept the name Israel. The southern two tribes of Benjamin and Judah, Judah being the larger tribe, took on the name Judah. So now we have two kingdoms of the Jewish people. As a result of this. Now, fast forward many years and after much sin to the year 722 BC. And in this year, the Assyrian Empire comes in and conquers Israel, the northern ten tribes. Uh, when the Assyrians came and conquered, they, they took some of the Jews out of their land and they took them to Assyria, but they also brought into the land Assyrians. And those Assyrians who came into the land uh, mingled with, married with, had children with, they became a new people. Does that make sense? They became a new people, and that new people was called the Samaritans. The Samaritan people. Uh, now the southern tribe, or the southern tribes, 587 B.C., uh, Babylon came in, that empire, and conquered them and took some of those people out and put them in exile. But they did not do the same thing as the Assyrians did. The Babylonians did not come in and intermarry, intermingle, have children, and all those things. So 
you have the northern ten tribes that are now the Samaritan people, and you have these southern tribes who, through history, have maintained the integrity, if you will, of their ethnicity, their beliefs, their religion, and all of that. So they had what they would consider purity. So this context then, this cultural context, is where we step into as we look together at John chapter 4. These Samaritans were 50% Jewish, 50% Assyrian, and 100% unacceptable and hated by the Jews. Let's pray before we look into John 4 together. Father, we thank you that uh, you are, and Jesus Christ is, the hope of the nations. That you so loved the world that you gave your Son. God, we thank you that your eyes, that you have eyes to see all who need to put their faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, for hope uh, to be given eternal life, to become your children. And I pray, Lord, that in this time together today that you would give us eyes to see and that we would love the world around us and happily and readily point them to Jesus. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, verse 1 of chapter 4. It says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although as we talked about a while back, uh, Jesus himself did not do any baptizing, just his disciples. He left Judea. Jesus left Judea, Judea and departed again for Galilee. Okay, so the problem here. Uh, remember that the problem previously, the, ba- the disciples of John the Baptist were thinking, oh no, all of our people are leaving. And they're going to Jesus and his disciples. What do we do? And remember that John the Baptist said, this is great. This was my purpose. Go. He said, may I, I must decrease and he must increase. Not so much with the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees saw John the Baptist as a threat. Their crowd was going to him and they did not like that. And so now Jesus has even more of a following than John the Baptist. Uh, Double trouble, okay? They're not going to like this. There's going to be a problem. And Jesus moves his way up to Galilee. Uh, Verse 4 says, And he had to pass through Samaria. Why would this even need, need to be said? This idea of having to pass through Samaria. So here's, here's why that's there. In traveling from the south in, in Judea up to the north of Galilee, there were basically two roads. One of them would have gone up the Jordan River Valley, and it would have passed through um, some Jewish people and then some Gentile people on the way up into Galilee, the Galileans. And then you also have up the uh, Jerusalem mountain ridge there, going up straight up the gut, you would have gone through the people of Samaria. Okay, so picture it like you're coming up north. You've passed Shepherd, and you're going up towards Mount Pleasant, and you have two options. You're going to bypass and go up 127, or you're going to go right through Business 127, right? Mission. You have two options. Now, for us in our cars, either way you go, you can roll your window up, turn on your radio, and you're off, right? And it really doesn't matter, except for maybe some time, or if you want to buy something, you need to pull off into town. For them, they're hiking. They're walking. And wherever they pass through, there are going to be needs they're going to have because they're not going to get from point A to point B very quickly. And they're going to need, they're going to need to interact with the people of those towns and villages that they pass by. And so for the Jewish people, guess which way was the preferred way? 
And I'll give you a clue. It wasn't the Samaritan way. Okay? But verse 4 says he had to pass by that way. Verse 5 says, So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Going back to Genesis now. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was, holy God taking on flesh, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. It means it was about noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now normally, the women of the town would have come to draw water together, and they would have come in the cool of the day. Um, It was a needed chore to go and get water for the day, but it was also had become a social activity. And the women would come together as a group. This woman came alone, and she came in the heat of the day. Something's wrong. Jesus says to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. As if to say there was nobody else to ask. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. This woman wasn't wrong to ask Jesus this question. The Jews really didn't have any dealings with the Samaritans. Uh, They were considered by the Jewish people to be unclean. The Jews Jews believed they were defiling themselves to eat and drink with the Samaritans. And so the utensils that would have been used, even in that well, having previously been used by the Samaritans, if Jesus had even drank from the same cup, then he would have been making himself unclean. Does that make sense? And so this would have been a crazy thing for him to ask. And the woman knows this and calls him on it. But this is Jesus. This is Jesus. Uh, Remember back. In Matthew 8, when uh, Jesus goes to the leper and he touches the leper, what would have happened to anybody else who touched the leper? He would have been unclean. But what happened that day? Jesus touched that leper who was left unclean. Nobody. (laughs) Jesus doesn't get unclean from unclean people. Jesus makes unclean people clean. This isn't anybody else. This is Jesus who's come to her. She doesn't understand this yet. She doesn't know who she's talking to yet, but she's about to. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So now who's thirsty? Jesus is turning the tables here. Verse 11, The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. You can't use mine. You have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? I'm going to read to you another verse from Jeremiah that's going to be very helpful for us as we go through the rest of this time today, okay? Jeremiah 2.13 says this, For my people have committed two evils. And this passage is speaking to the Jewish people. They've committed two evils. One, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, And two, they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, uh, things to hold water with, broken cisterns that can hold no water. In the context of that, he's, he's talking about the Jewish people's worship of false gods. Remember, there's only one true God, 
every other God that has ever been made by man was made by man and for the purpose of serving their own interests. These are broken cisterns. They don't work. Jesus here in this passage, though, is going to open up the possibilities here of what this could mean. And the broken cistern is not just going to be a false god or a false way of religion, but anything, anything that isn't him that we would go to for our comfort, our help, our security. Does that make sense? So this idea of living water is brought up. We're thinking through Jeremiah 2.13. She's hearing the words because she asks, where do you get that living water? She's repeating them back in her question, but she's not getting it yet, of course. What is the answer to her question? The idea of where do you get that living water? And we've got to change our thinking on this because Jesus isn't a getter of living water. A G-E-T-T-E-R. It's not even probably a word, but you get the idea. He's not the getter of living water. He's the giver of it. So she asked this question. Verse 12. Are you greater than our father, Jacob? Whose father? The Samaritan woman here is claiming Jacob as her father, as the father of the Samaritans. Know this, that the Samaritan people, part of their uh, mixing together as a people and distancing themselves from, and sometimes by necessity, because the Jewish people were also pushing them away, they intermingled their faith as well. So the Samaritans had their own version of the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They had their own version of it that was twisted and manipulated to serve their interests. And so when they heard about Jacob, whose father was Jacob? Their father. And we're going to see this back and forth happening a little bit here. And it's not really a back and forth, it's more of just a forth and forth, because the Samaritan woman's going after Jesus with these things. Okay, and this is the beginning of her distraction technique. Okay, any Jew would have been a sucker for this statement and gotten caught up in the debate. But again, Jesus isn't just anybody. This is different. She said next, He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, and this is where we start to get everything rocked here, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Everyone. Jew? Yes. Samaritan? Yes. Any Gentiles? Mm-hmm. Everyone. Whoever. Jews? Yep. Samaritans? Yeah. Any Gentiles? Whoever. This is what Jesus says to her. So the whole Jew-Samaritan argument, Jesus says, let's get out of that. Let's get out of that right now. The water that I will give him, it says in verse 14, will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus says, I am the giver of eternal life. The woman said to him, verse 15, Sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty. I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She asked for this water, doesn't she? But she doesn't really understand yet. Why does she want the water? What is her motivation? She says it here. So that I will never have to come here again to draw water. What does she want to avoid? She doesn't want to go in the morning 
with those other ladies. What's going on? What's, what is the problem? She's going by herself. And every time you would think she goes by herself, it's just a reminder to her of the reason why she can't go with the others. So Jesus, if you have some sort of water that I can have where I don't have to come back here again, I'm game. But just this coming back and forth to this well thing. That's as far as she is right now. Does that make sense? That's where she is right now. And there's a mess. There's obviously a mess in her life, and Jesus knows what it is. Verse 16, he said to her, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Now, she's really trying to avoid the issue now. Jesus got back, he got past the Jacob test, uh, but she does not want to go down this road with this unusual Jewish man who speaks of eternal life and living waters. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying that you have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. Well, now we know why she's coming to the well alone. This woman knew, she knew, thinking back to Jeremiah 2, she knew what it was like to keep coming back to the well and to remain thirsty. The people of Israel had rejected God. They'd made for themselves broken cisterns that hold no water. They remained thirsty. This woman is experiencing this right now. This was an illustration, a picture of what the people did and what people do to attempt to replace God for what only God could give them with anything that this world might have to offer. This woman, this woman wanted something that no man would ever be able to give her. Marriage failed to be everything that she needed. And relying on it for her comfort, for her salvation, only left her more lonely than she was before. Is marriage a good thing? Sure it is. Is it your Savior? No. And if we think that it is our Savior, it'll only prove to fail. And for this woman, it failed over and over and over and over and over again to where this time she's not even going to go there. This is where she is. Now here comes attempt number three at distracting Jesus, verse 19. She's saying, whoa, 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 don't go there. <laughs> Change the subject. The woman said to him, you'd think maybe she'd say, how'd you know that? But she says, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Okay, maybe now she's like, tell me what I need to believe, right? No. She says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. You want to get out of a difficult situation? Doctrinal argument, let's go. That's where she's going with this. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you uh, worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Jesus kindly answers her question. <laughs> and, and because his, his question also, or his answer, continues to blow up the walls that she's building. Does knowledge of the truth matter? Yes, right? John fourteen six says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He doesn't tell her that it doesn't matter. He says, you're worshiping something you don't know. The reason why they didn't know is because, remember, they had the manipulated version of the Pentateuch. You're worshiping something you don't know. He's being 
honest with her and teaching her, we worship what we do know. The Jews were right in that Jerusalem was the place and the temple was the right temple for that time in the Old Testament and the covenant and all that stuff. But he also goes beyond that. Verse 23, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers, the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So Jesus has come. The new covenant has begun. God is seeking for people individuals, individuals, worshipers who are enabled, gifted, empowered by the Spirit of God, who are guided by and obedient to the truth of the Word of God. And wherever these people are gathered, these individuals gathered together, the Spirit is there. God is there. Two passages from 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Do you not know that you, and that's a plural, you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? 1 Corinthians 6, this is one we think about more often. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? Church, why don't we have to go to Jerusalem? Why don't we have to go to the temple to worship where the, the presence, the Spirit of God is manifested or, or is especially present. Why don't we have to do that? Because He's here. Amen? <laughs> Individually, when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit was given to you. He is in you now. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ... And he serves in many ways to point you and remind you of your salvation, to point you to Christ. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit, our inner man, that we are the children of God. He serves as a seal, meaning a mark, so that when God would look on you, when God would look on me and the Spirit is there, we're his. He knows we're his. And it's the first installment, if you will, of our inheritance in Christ. It's the beginning of what we're going to have in him. God is here because Christians are here. And, if that wasn't enough, God is here because Christians are here. All of us. When First Baptist Church comes together on Sunday morning to worship the Lord, the Lord comes and wor- not worships and is here with us as we worship Him, right? He didn't worship us. That would be bad. I'd be in trouble if I got that out. No. When we come together... As the people of God, God is here with us as we worship him. Do we say that because it feels good or because we think it's a sweet idea? No, we got to get rid of that kind of stuff. No, we say that because the Bible tells us it's so. Sometimes we don't think about it a lot, do we? Sometimes we don't pay attention to that very much. God's here. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He hears everything. When, when, when we sang our worship songs this morning, if he wasn't here, he would have known we were doing that right and would have been worshipped by it, but, he, but he's here. He's here with us. That's a pretty amazing thing. So we don't have to go to Jerusalem. No pilgrimage necessary to check 
something off of our list of spirituality. We are the temple. The Spirit of God is with us today. Praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord for that. Lost where I was. All right. Verse 25, right? Here comes diversion tactic number four. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. Think she's starting to maybe put a couple things together here? At least that this is going to be a good conversation. She's got that much figured out. I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Who's us? She's still down that track. The Samaritans. Who's the Messiah coming for? Us. The Samaritans. Well, how dare she say something like that? But, what do the Jews believe? Who was the Messiah coming for? Us. Right? Part of the issue at hand here. And Jesus was supposed to respond with, the Messiah is coming back for us, not for you, the Samaritans, you dirty people. But Jesus had come for them. He came for the Samaritans and the Jews and us. He came for the world. God so loved the world. Jesus did not respond the way she expected. Instead, he said, he told her, I who speak to you am he. And the order of the words in the Greek there, the words are ego, me, and they are the words for I am. So when she said, the Messiah is coming for us, he didn't say, no, he's coming for the Jews. He said, I am. I am that I am. Messiah. <laughs> That's what Jesus says to this woman. Jesus just announced to this woman who he is. He is the Messiah. And this is the first recorded instance where Jesus clearly, publicly proclaims exactly who he is. It hasn't happened yet until now. No fanfare. No fireworks. No build-up or press. No media coverage. No massive crowds. There isn't a single Jew anywhere around. Just this single individual hurting Samaritan woman who had kept on continuously going to these broken cisterns looking to quench a thirst that he knew only he could fulfill. This is who he shares himself with. That's good news for us. Just then, his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. <laughs> but no one said, what do you seek or what do you, why are you talking with her? Uh, know this, the Pharisees wrote about what it was like to talk to women and to teach women. And they didn't want to do it and they didn't want anybody else to do it. They said it was a bad idea to teach women. Why? Because they, they might get enlightened. Seriously. They would learn and they might feel empowered and liberated. That's what they wrote. That's what they said. That was why you weren't supposed to talk to women. Of course, that turned into just a don't talk to women. And so the disciples, growing up in that context, growing up in that culture, see Jesus talking to a woman, a Samaritan woman no less, and said, why are you talking to a woman? 
That's what they were taught. That's what they grew up in. Obviously, this is a bad move. This is, this is a culture of submission by necessity and desperation. Does that make sense? Why did the women have to submit? Because they had no other option for their survival. Because they were not allowed to learn. That's not biblical complementarianism. Realize Christianity was one of the most empowering and liberating things that ever happened to women in this world. Okay? Now, do we believe in complementarianism? Did God create man and woman? And did God create them to have distinctive roles and functions together? Yes. Is submission something that God has given? Yes. But because of love, because of choice and obedience, not because of necessity or desperation. That's not what God called for. Okay? Commercial breakover. Verse 28. So, (laughs) the woman left her water jar and went away into town instead of the people. Notice she didn't respond to him after that. She just dropped her stuff and took off. And she said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Do you see now that the repentance is starting to take place in her? This Samaritan woman went from isolation to community. She went from distraction and avoiding the truth to reminding everybody of all that was true about her and acknowledging it. And they knew this was a small town in a small village. They didn't need Facebook or any other kind of social media to know everybody's business. And five of them were her ex-husbands. They knew who she was. And even though she may still have even had some doubts asking, could this be the Christ, God used her honest testimony to draw people out to meet their Messiah. Meanwhile, verse 31, the the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has somebody brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Living water in this passage, putting your faith and trust in Christ for salvation, springing up into eternal life, that living water. And food doing the will of the Father, obedience. If you feel spiritually uh, malnourished, if you're not feeling vibrant in your faith, where is your faith? And how is it working itself out? Are you following Jesus? Are you obeying the word? Are you in the word? If you're not, and if you aren't, you're not going to feel it. Does that make sense? A lot of times, folks who may be doubting their salvation... And this isn't always, but a lot of times a good question is, where is your walk with the Lord right now? Uh, Because nourishment is doing the will of the Father. Doing the will of the Father. Verse 35. Do you not say there are yet four months? Then comes the harvest. He sent this to the disciples. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see. This is going to be the main thing for us today. Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. 
Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Jesus is not teaching a lesson on agriculture here. Jesus has come, so the harvest has begun. Seeds have been sown, the harvest is beginning. We, today, will sow seeds. And we will water seeds that have been sown. And we should expect the harvest to continue. Jesus hasn't come back yet. The harvest should be continuing. It's going to be continuing. Now, many Samaritans, speaking of harvest, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So, when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. Verse 4, he had to go by way of Samaria. And many more believed because of his word. Faith comes by the hearing of the word. And they said to the woman after that, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. Not saying that what you said was meaningless, but it's not just your testimony anymore. For we've heard for ourselves, and we know, and this is great, we know that this, Jesus, is indeed the Savior of the Samaritans. Is that what he says? Is that what it says? I tricked you. (laughs) This is indeed the Savior of the world. The world. They acknowledged that he was the Messiah for the world. The wall's torn down. Those Samaritans are acknowledging he's the Jews' Messiah. He's everybody else's Messiah. He's the Samaritans' Messiah. They get it. They know. They've believed. They've believed. God is saving a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation for his glory. Jesus tells them, lift up your eyes and see. Lift up your eyes and see. They first come on the scene and look and they see a Samaritan and a woman and they go, whoa, 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 whoa. What should it have been? Jesus should have been revealing himself to a Jewish man to go and make this thing get going. What's wrong here? Jesus says, lift up your eyes and see. They see a crowd of Samaritans coming and what are they probably going to think with their cultural backgrounds, their ideas of the social norms? Uh Uh-oh. There's like 13 of us and there's a whole town of them. Jesus says, lift up your eyes and see. That's a harvest field coming this way. The disciples were stuck in the rut of the cultural norms and therefore unable to see or comprehend what God was obviously doing. When they saw the Samaritans, they saw a nuisance of a people. When they saw Jesus talking with and teaching a woman, they saw a threat. But Jesus is a savior of the world. Not just men, but women. Not just Jews, but Samaritans. Everyone. North and South Americans. Everyone. Europeans and Africans. Everyone. Middle Eastern and Far Eastern. Australia. New Zealand. Don't forget about them. Even the scientists in Antarctica. Everyone. We're not going to go to the North Pole today, okay? Everyone. Everyone. God is saving a people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation for his 
glory. Now, as we put all this together, let's think about a few things. Okay, let's think about people. Okay, number one, people are more important than food. People are more important than food. I don't know about you, but I am a sucker for a big, juicy burger. I, I like to eat cheeseburgers, okay? Comfort food. You know that concept? Do you have your own kind of comfort food? Uh, by the way, I say a big, juicy burger... Oranges and grapes make juice, right? What's dripping off of that burger? <laughs> That's not juice, right? That's not juice. And if I eat too many, if I eat them too often, and if I don't ever exercise, it will kill me. How messed up is it? How messed up is it that we would find comfort in the things that will destroy us? Broken cisterns. We all have our go-tos. And anything that is your go-to that isn't Jesus, it's a broken cistern. It's not going to pull through. It's not going to work. And it will leave you more depressed, more saddened, more hopeless. And think about this now. When we have an opportunity to share with others... Words that will give them life, giving them living water, we stop. We hesitate because we feel uncomfortable. I'll eat all the greasy burgers I can and I'll stop when I have an ability to give somebody life. Or we don't even think about sharing with people because it's not the cultural norm. Why would Jesus speak to a Samaritan woman? Uh, this is a good reminder for us that feelings and intuitions lie to us. Our hearts are desperately wicked. Church, let's not follow our hearts. God is seeking worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth, not feelings. Number two, people need to hear your testimony. People need to hear your testimony. This doesn't mean you have to get a three-point sermon prepared, okay? Uh, the Samaritan woman, think about what she did now. She ran into a town that thought very little of her and simply said, come and see a man who told me all I ever did. Could this be the Christ? That was the testimony. Like three seconds, right? But her testimony is more than that statement, wasn't it? It was way more than that statement. But that's all she had to say. And they went and they saw and they believed. They believed. People need to know who you are, not just what you want them to think you are. Okay, there's a reason the woman's testimony struck a chord with the town. They knew who she was. So church, let's be careful not to fake some sort of spiritual superiority to save face and to look good. That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. When we act like that, when we act like we have it all together, together, uh, the testimony that we're giving is the same as any other works-based false gospel religion and it's broken cisterns. If I tell somebody they need to go to church because I'm awesome, which keeping up appearances is doing that, okay, it leaves no room for grace, leaves no room for the gospel. And we won't see a harvest if the seeds that we are sowing are dead religion and keeping up appearances. That will fail every time. It might put people in seats, but it won't expand the kingdom. 
if you understand what I'm saying. And number two was people need to hear your testimony. Number three, people will not think they need to hear your testimony. You catch the difference between those two things? The truth of number two, people need to hear your testimony. Number three, people don't think they need to hear your testimony. They don't. They don't. Look at this from the perspective of the Samaritan woman. This is a real woman, by the way, the Samaritan woman. She's not a fictitious character. She's in heaven right now, she believed. And she might be saying, I cannot believe I kept pushing Jesus away. Because she gets it now, right? Especially in heaven. And she might be thinking, I can't, I can't believe I pushed him away and it's in the Bible. That's so embarrassing. They're reading about it today. She kept building up all of these walls. Jesus kept tearing them down. Some walls, her sin. Acknowledging sin does not build up walls. It tears them down. We have to know the good news before, or we have to know the bad news before we can get the good news. And if we think that sin is something that ought not to be talked about, and if we think that sin is something that ought to be avoided by all means and and not even thought of, we are just leaving walls up. We need to tear them down. The second wall, her ethnicity. She wasn't unclean because she was a Samaritan. She was unclean because she was a sinner. Her problem wasn't cultural. It was personal. And Jesus is the Christ for all. He is a personal Savior. Her third wall was her religion. All these competing views and loyalties. I shared the gospel with an older woman uh, in Illinois. This would have been 10 years ago or so. And she was in her late 70s. And she listened and she asked questions. It was wonderful. We spent that time together sharing. And she was hearing the gospel and got to the point where it just seemed like she got it. And I asked, would you put your faith and trust in Christ right now? And she said, oh, no. No, I can't do that. I said, well, what, what's keeping you from that? Why? And she started to tell me the story of her family and the church that she was brought up in. And she was of a denomination, of a, a type of Christian church that basically taught that you have to be good enough, you have to do the right works, you have to complete all of the checklist of things to do to get yourself to hopefully get into heaven. And in her family, her mother had raised all of her siblings up in this church, and every one of her siblings had left that church. And so in her mind, she was the one that was keeping the family sanctified. She was the one that kept the family in that faith, in that church. And her mom had passed So she couldn't talk it over with her. She couldn't get out. She understood the gospel enough to know that it wasn't what she was doing there and she would have to leave there and she wouldn't do it. Walls built up. Broken cisterns that fail. And think what her mother... If her mother could say something to her, think of the rich man and Lazarus. Her mother would have been saying, No! No! Believe! Leave the church! Believe! That's not your salvation. Jesus is your salvation. She wouldn't do it. How sad. These are walls that we build up. And do you know who else has built up walls to keep Christ out? Every one of us. Everyone. Some of us, even Christians here today, do we build up walls to keep us from growing spiritually? Yeah, we do. Some of them we're totally blind to. But there's walls. 
They are walls. Romans 3 says that no one's righteous, no one understands, no one seeks for God. That's why God commanded us to go and preach the gospel. People don't think they need to hear your testimony. Why? They're lost. They're blind. They're dead. They're not going to figure it out for themselves. That's why we have to go. And if we always wait until we think they're ready to hear if we think that they're in a place where they're going to be happy that we've shared with them, when will we share? They're dead. They're dead. God is seeking worshipers. And he's commanded us, Luke 14, to compel them to come in. Our job is to go to them and point them to Christ and show them the gospel. Tell them of their need. That's what we have to do. And number four, this is last thing, people are all around you. People are all around us. Look from the perspective of the disciples. Uh, remember, Jesus told them, lift up your eyes and see. The media, the culture, our neighborhoods, maybe even our own families are telling us what and how to think about people all the time. The culture, for some reason, seems to get to tell us and define for us what is culturally acceptable. But Christian... Christian, you believe that a Jewish man was born of a virgin woman. You believe that he never sinned. You believe that there's such a thing as sin. You believe that when he died, he paid for your sin. You believe that he rose from the dead. You believe that he's coming back and he's going to rule and reign on this earth. You believe that God exists and created the universe. You believe that marriage was made by God, created by God for one man and one woman, and that God gave them specific roles in the home. You're weird. That's not normal. Do you see that now? We have gone into an era when it may be the greatest blessing for us to realize that we are weird in this culture. And we're not weird just to be weird. Okay, Paul wasn't weird just to be weird. He was weird because of what he taught and what he believed. That's our weirdness. That we would identify with Christ. We're weird. Let's get over it. And go share the gospel. Okay, the culture's not going to accept it. They're not going to call it appropriate. But when will they? Even in a time when we are uh, firmly rooted in a Judeo-Christian work ethic and life ethic in the culture... Was it still ethically responsible or culturally appropriate to tell somebody that if they didn't put their faith and trust in Christ alone and not the religion that they were going to be lost forever in hell? That's never been culturally appropriate. And it never will be. Let's go. Who is our God? And we can't just point the finger to culture and realize that we didn't just do that. We, we shouldn't be letting the culture restrain us anyways. But the disciples needed to lift their eyes because they were basically looking into vanity mirrors, emphasizing the word vanity, finding all the characteristics that they liked about themselves and their people. Okay? So if a person that we came into contact with looked like them or talked like them, acted like them, they are a prime candidate for the gospel. Think about us. How do people sometimes choose their friends? Vanity mirrors. You look like me. You talk like me. You like what I like. You laugh at what I laugh at. Why did Solomon listen to those younger counselors? Hey, let's hang out so that I can enjoy myself. That's a lot of times the system for friendship. Or if a person looks like a winner. We might as a church say, like a college coach looking for a five-star recruit. 
man, if we could get that guy, and they're lost. But we say, man, if we could get that guy or that girl, oh man, that would be sweet to get them into the fold. What would they do? But God isn't looking for talent. He's looking for worshipers. Remember, you're not the talent. I'm not the talent. Nicodemus wasn't the talent. John the Baptist was not the talent. Jesus is the talent. He's the only five-star recruit. He's the righteous one who died in our place. He's the one that we look to. He is the one that we point people to. And Jesus himself went to this Samaritan woman and told her that he was the Christ. And many of those Samaritans believed. Why did Jesus go to her? Why did Jesus go to them? Because they're sinners. They needed a Savior. That's why. Guess what I am? A sinner who needs a Savior. If you're a sinner here today but you've never put your faith and trust in Christ, never seen him as your all-sufficient Savior, never saw your need for him, and you realize today that everything else you've gone after is a broken cistern, today's the day. Put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ today. Repent and be saved. And church, let's get the vanity out of our mirrors, if you will, so that when we, we can remember who we really are and then lift up our eyes and see that all these people around us are just like we are.